Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your word, that it is true and sure. And we pray in your mercy uh, that we would understand it and receive it as your word and know its encouragement this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's funny what uh, stays with you. I can still remember the foolish builder's line from Butterworth and Inkpen's version of the story and the wise of the wise and foolish builder. I want it now. I want it quick. This place will do. I want it now. I want it quick. Could well describe the attitude of the disciples to the establishment of the kingdom of heaven, of the reign of God. At the time when, in their understanding, all idolaters would be driven from the land and Israel, God's people, would dwell secure and prosperous in their own land, living according to the righteous and just commands of God, worshipping the true God alone. So they didn't want it just, they didn't just want it quick, they wanted it pure as well all the ungodly driven out, no more conflict, no more of their lies in your face. They wanted it big and bold so the idolaters would be humbled, unable to escape confessing the victory and reign of Israel's God. And you could understand their longing, couldn't you? They were a conquered people, paying taxes to the Romans and living under their laws. Every day the risk of some new humiliation and they knew the burden of injustice, corrupt rulers, the grind of poverty with money going to foreigners and absentee landlords and they knew the grief of disease and death. They wanted that promised kingdom of heaven, that promised reign of God and they increasingly thought that they had in Jesus the one who could bring that time, bring that rain. That's what lay behind John and James's mother's request to Jesus. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. She wasn't talking about some distant time or some heavenly spiritual kingdom. She was looking forward to the time, in her understanding, very soon when Jesus would be in power, be sitting literally on the throne in Jerusalem at the centre of government, and she wanted her sons to share in that power and glory. And it wasn't just the disciples who wanted the kingdom now. The crowd in John 6, when they saw the sign that Jesus had done, feeding 5,000 with a few loaves, said, This truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. And they wanted to make sure that they were, as it were, on the right side of history by bringing to power, to rule, one who, as the prophet to come, would inevitably become, like Moses, ruler over God's people. So they talk of seizing Jesus and making him king. They wanted the kingdom now and they wanted it quick. And this expectation that the kingdom should come quickly, come now, didn't end with Jesus' death and resurrection. Before Jesus' ascension, this in Acts 1, was the question on the disciples' lips. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? 
surely now. They had deeply ingrained expectations of the reign of God and that time should come now, a pure reign, with the godless gone, big, bold, visible. And I get the impression that what they expected is not so much different from what many believers want today. God's reign on earth, big and bold and visible and now. They're tired of the confusion of right and wrong in public life, the frustration of the continuing power of those who deny that Jesus is Lord. They want visible influence in the world. They're disappointed by our lack of cultural control where believers' voices are not heard and listened to. They want the hassle of living alongside those who reject God finished to have things only our way to have in our hands the levers of power, to call the shots on what happens. Now, perhaps you think I've overstated the case, but I'm picking that up more and more as Christian people talk of our loss of freedoms, the neglect of their rights, their frustrations with or suspicions of the direction of government. Perhaps you share in that frustration. Oh, and it's mixed in, isn't it, with a longing for things to be put right a longing heightened by the seemingly chaotic events of the last week, rising COVID numbers, earthquakes, riots on our streets. At the very least, you can understand what the disciples were looking for. The kingdom now, the kingdom quick, pure, big and bold. But in the three parables we heard in our reading, Jesus speaks to and corrects the expectations of his first hearers just as he also speaks to our expectations both of the kingdom and God's work in the world and he tells them and us that the kingdom is not going to be the way they expect and want but better now you heard the stories and all three have one thing in common don't they a weight A period of time passes between sowing and harvest, between planting the mustard seed and it's reaching its wondrous maturity, between putting the leaven in the dough and it being all leavened, the dough rising. Not now, not quick, the Lord is saying. There will be a time between the beginning of the kingdom and its greatness, a time for development It works on God's timetable, not ours. will be revealed God's way, not the way we choose. And the parable of the wheat and the weeds also tells them that in the time until the harvest, good and evil will coexist in the world, live alongside each other, inseparable from each other. There will never be a time when the world is not mixed, And while societies vary over history, don't expect a time in history when all you have is the righteous running things. The devil will continue to be at work and until the end, the spread of the gospel will be opposed. And the parable of the mustard seed then tells them and us that the beginning won't come with a bang. The point of the mustard seed is to stress the smallness of the beginning. It's a tiny seed, the smallest they were familiar with. And often we see in the parable of the leaven 
the presence and influence of the kingdom will be invisible like leaven in dough. Not big, bold and visible, not the immediate removal of evil, but insignificant, invisible, mixed. Now that would have struck them as pretty disappointing, deflating if they took it on board. It may even strike us that way. But but that is not all the parables teach. Take the parable of the wheat and the weeds and its interpretation in verses 36 to 43. It's for the sake of the wheat, the children of the kingdom, the followers of Jesus, that the weeds aren't removed, that the good and the wicked coexist. That is, it's the salvation of Jesus' people that is still directing history. Now, the scene of a jealous neighbour sowing needs in his weeds in his neighbour's field would actually not have been unfamiliar to the first hearers. It happened often enough for the Romans to have a specific law forbidding people from sowing weeds in their neighbour's field. And the specific weed in question, Darnell, which is at the bottom, which is related to ryegrass, grew up initially looking like the wheat. And the difference only became apparent when it started to set seed, as you can see there, when the ears were developing. Now, the goal of sowing darnel was to render the crop commercially useless. For the grains of darnel are poisonous, and where they're mixed in with wheat grains, the crop is dangerous and profitless. You can't sell it. By the time you noticed its presence, the roots of the darnel had actually intertwined with the wheat, so you couldn't pull out the weeds without uprooting the wheat. If the wheat was going to come to maturity, you had to wait to separate the wheat from the weeds at harvest. It's for the sake of the wheat to allow the gospel seed to come to full maturity in the lives of all God's people that the children of the kingdom coexist in the world with the children of the evil one. Now, children, uh, verse 38, uh, has the sense of those who belong to. So the children of the kingdom are those who belong to the king. They're those who follow the Lord Jesus. And the children of the evil one are those who belong to the evil one because they've been enslaved by believing the devil's lies. It's for the sake of God's children to give them the opportunity and context to come to fruitful maturity that they coexist with the wicked throughout history and throughout the world. And it is the world, verse 38, the field is the world. This parable is not talking about having a mixed church. While in Matthew 10 we saw that the mission of the 12 was then to be confined to Israel, Jesus is saying the kingdom will embrace the world. You see, thinking kingdom, the disciples only had in their, had their minds on Israel and the here and now of overthrowing the Romans. But Jesus knew his mission went way beyond Israel, that he would, as he said at the end of the gospel, have disciples from all nations. His mission, his sowing of the seed, embraces the world. Oh, and Jesus also knew it was a mission 
that the devil, verse 39, will oppose always, always oppose with his lies. But at the same time, he assures his followers, those to whom he's entrusted this mission, that that opposition won't stop the harvest, make the mission profitless. You see, it's easy, isn't it, to become frustrated and discouraged by opposition, the constant coexistence with evil. It's easy to become discouraged where you see the gospel making progress and then rapidly it's opposed and undermined. And that is what we see throughout church history, isn't it? A door opens to the gospel. At great cost, people become believers and then more and more believe and then the false teachers enter. That's what happened in Nepal. Didn't open the gospel till the 50s and the people became believers at great cost. In the 70s, false teachers came in. On is what's happening now amongst our Iranian brethren. Or another example, the Reformation happens. The gospel's proclaimed clearly people believe but soon it's derailed by the peasants' revolt and becomes mired in a contest for power among the lords of the Holy Roman Empire. The culture is revolutionised by embracing a Christian ethic about the sanctity of life. And then other values come in and become dominant. The growth of the weeds can be discouraging, but Jesus assures his followers that the devil will not succeed in making that mission profitless, for there will be a harvest, a time when the wheat is separated from the weeds. When, at verse 41, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. You hear that? None of the wheat will be lost. And one day the kingdom will be pure. There will be none who cause sin or lawlessness. But that will only happen by Jesus' action at the end of the age doesn't happen through the action of his followers in history. It happens through Jesus' action at the end of the age. And then the kingdom will be bigger and better than anything the disciples were imagining would happen if Jesus was soon to take power in Jerusalem. Then the kingdom will be revealed as the new heaven and earth with people from every nation and tongue praising God forever. And the parable of the mustard seed tells us that while the beginning's small, there is an unbreakable connection between that small beginning and the unrivaled greatness of the kingdom. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Jesus starts with a plant they knew, uh, that they sowed on the edges of their field, what was known as black mustard. Its seeds were proverbially tiny. 
the smallest commonly known to them. But it could grow up to two metres in height. But when Jesus says it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches, he is not teaching them botany. He's actually emphasising the unexpected greatness of the kingdom. He's emphasising the unexpected greatness of what will come inevitably from those small beginnings, a kingdom far beyond their expectations. The mention of the birds coming and nesting echoes the description of great world empires found in the Old Testament, as in the description of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom in his dream. There was a tree in the middle of the earth and it was very tall, The tree grew large and strong, its top reached to the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant and on it was food for all. Wild animals found shelter under it and the birds of the sky lived in its branches and every creature was fed from it. Excuse me. In Daniel 4, The animals and the birds actually represent other peoples and kingdoms finding shelter in Nebuchadnezzar's rule. In the parable, Jesus is telling us that from this tiny beginning will come a kingdom in which all nations can find a place. So Jesus is assuring his followers that his ministry, his bringing the kingdom in his preaching and presence even though it is so small and insignificant, and it is, remember, it only came to the attention of the Roman rulers when some local officials brought it to their attention, even though it's so small and insignificant, will inevitably, organically bring a great kingdom. As the tree is in the seed, so this kingdom greater than all embracing all nations, is in his ministry. And the leaven, and the leaven, again, an everyday activity, one that they would all have been familiar with. A leaven's actually like sourdough, and that's a picture there of a, what they call a decimal leaven starter. The woman takes a piece of the old fermented dough reserved from her previous bread making and puts it into the new dough so that it ferments and rises. And in the story, it's actually a very large amount of dough. It's about 24 and a half kilograms, enough to feed 100 people. And Jesus is saying that this small amount of leaven will have an effect on the whole lot and it will permeate this large amount of dough unseen. And again, the effect is inevitable. Once begun, it will continue until it's permeated through the whole at a pervasive influence. The kingdom Jesus is bringing may not have met the expectations of his followers at the beginning, but what he has begun will inevitably exceed their expectations. A kingdom whose work the evil one cannot make useless by his lies, an eternal kingdom 
with people from every nation and no evil in it anymore. A reign that will embrace all, greater than all empires and kingdoms. An influence that will extend to all, unseen, nothing left untouched. Now, you wonder what they would have made of these stories, of this kingdom. It is so different from their expectations, (laughs) so different that it's puzzling and disappointing. And they only had Jesus' word for it, didn't they? So these stories were a puzzle and disappointment, a puzzle and disappointment like Jesus' refusal to be a conquering king, a puzzle and disappointment like Jesus' insistence that he must suffer, a puzzle and disappointment like his refusal, Matthew 26, when he's arrested to take up arms to defend himself, a puzzle and disappointment like his execution on that shameful cross, as far as you could imagine, from a big, bold triumph over the godless. And then Jesus rose and he sent them out into the world saying, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they went, went into a world where they were insignificant, without power and influence. A word where the word they sowed, as we see in the New Testament, was quickly met with opposition, lies, the presence of false teachers. And in that world, as they went about Jesus' mission, these parables of Jesus became a source of great Convinced of the resurrection, they knew that this was the king's description of his kingdom, the king who had all authority in heaven and earth. And knowing that, they knew that the kingdom was this way by his choice. This was the way he willed it to be through their insignificant work to spread through the world. The way he willed it to be, because as he said at his arrest, He could have called down 12 legions of angels to destroy his enemies. He could have seized power in Jerusalem at any time, but he willed the children of the kingdom to coexist throughout the world to the end of the world with the children of the evil one. He willed the humblest of beginnings. He willed his reign to progress secretly without fanfare. And so they ministered that gospel word with persevering and confident hope. For they knew he willed and had guaranteed in himself the outcome. They could go confidently to the world knowing no matter what the opposition, God would bring the sons of the kingdom, those who belong to Jesus from every nation, to share in his eternal reign and that in his patience none of his people would perish. Oh, they knew that in the insignificance of their preaching, their proclamation that the crucified Jesus was Lord, they knew that the smallest, the most humble of all seeds would grow to become the greatest of kingdoms. And they knew that their invisibility, where it was the poor, the lowly, the slaves, the widows, the poor in spirit, 
not the proud and wealthy and mighty who were responding to the gospel. They knew that their invisibility would change the world. Just as they knew that the end was certain and the day would come when the Son of Man would send his angels out to gather his people. What about us? We hear these stories in a different context, don't we? We know as we hear them that what they came to know only later we already know in becoming believers, that the one who spoke them is the risen king describing his reign. And we have Christian history, don't we? We're in a church of Jesus' followers 2,000 years later at the end of the world. And so in a sense we've already seen the truth of these parables, haven't we? We know the continuing coexistence of Jesus' followers with those who still believe the devil's lies. Oh, and we know that the gospel seed is still growing up however dense we might feel the weeds around us. And we have seen great outcomes from the small beginning of Jesus' ministry. We know that those who confess Jesus come from all nations and number in their billions. And we have seen the influence of the gospel in the world as people turn to Jesus, are persuaded of the rightness of his teaching, the founding of hospitals, laws that enshrine the dignity of the individual, the removal of slavery, the promotion of mutual faithfulness in marriage and many other good things. And we also know that in the end no nation can isolate itself from the spread of the gospel. We know Jesus spoke the truth. And yet our experience is still mixed. And that can be wearing and discouraging to see where we sow the gospel, how quickly the devil jumps in with his lies. Oh, it can be discouraging to see that the Christian presence still seems so small, overlooked and invisible as well as ignored and opposed. Discouraging where we want to be noticed, want to be heard, think we should be heard, where we started to fear that the story is somehow now happening in reverse. The influence receding, the tree being lopped, the weeds growing healthily, the weeds squeezed out. But Jesus speaks the truth into our context as well. He is once and for all time the king never to be dethroned, ruling forever. The king, by his humbling himself, by that puzzling, disappointing determination to die, to die for our sins, that determination to not fulfil the expectations of his followers for the big, the bold, the violent destruction of his enemies. He gives us true and right expectations of his reign in these stories he told. And we should be confident. The influence of the gospel won't, can't be curtailed. Once it's started, it will work through the whole lump. The growth of the kingdom is inevitable and all nations will find their place in it. The seed the son of man sows will bear fruit 
His harvest won't be frustrated by the work of the evil one. He does it his way, always his way, and his way prevails. So now is the time to keep living as Jesus' followers, not being anxious about what's happening in our world, but trusting him, obeying all that he has taught, love of our enemies, meekness, being willing to suffer for righteousness, being merciful and peacemakers. Oh, and yes, obeying what he's taught us through his apostles. For example, Titus 3. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind. Always showing gentleness to all people. Oh, yes, obeying. And in word and action, proclaiming that the Lord Jesus is king. Remembering that the end is certain. In the end, it is the end that Jesus' explanation of the wheat and the weeds encourages, isn't it? Emphasizes. The harvest, he says, is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing fire there where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. We should take what Jesus says of the end to heart in these days, shouldn't we? Where we experience pestilence, earthquake, wars and rumours of wars, the beginning of the birth pangs. Those things, you see, are reminders that this world is under judgement, which should sharpen our readiness for the final judgement of which Jesus speaks. Where our Lord teaches here, that there will be a separation between those who believe lies and do not submit to being ruled by his just commands, those who call sin and are guilty of lawlessness, there will be a separation of them from the sons of the kingdom, those who belong to the king by trusting him and living as his disciples, doing all he has commanded. And that difference in outcomes is as great as you can possibly imagine. The lawless consigned to the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is Jesus' language and he wants you to feel it and it speaks of an end which is awful, just and conscious. He speaks of it to warn so that you can avoid it. You're still rebelling. Don't comfort yourself by thinking Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Don't comfort yourself by thinking it won't be as bad as he says. It will be as worse, will be worse than you can imagine. Rather believe him as he warns. Just as you should believe him when he says he came into the world to save sinners, died to ransom you from that just judgment. 
believe him and call out to him. Confess him the living Lord. Confess that you have sinned and ask for his mercy. You can do that at home. He hears you. Call out to him and ask for what he will most certainly give you. Heed his warning. But hear also his promise on that day the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. The righteous, those who trust Jesus and follow him. Will you be included amongst them, ready for the great harvest by trusting Jesus, believing he's God's king, and by living as children of the kingdom who know they belong to Jesus and give themselves to the righteousness he has taught in this gospel the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness of the children of God who persevere in listening to Jesus and doing what he says, who are determined to be ready for what Jesus says will certainly come and who are determined not just to be ready themselves but to help others be ready by preaching the gospel of Jesus, crucified for our sins, buried and raised on the third day, by preaching the gospel of Jesus to all. That is love. The love Jesus commands and the love Jesus showed in coming to seek and save the lost. And if we believe Jesus, well, That's what these parables encourage us to do in our time, no matter when the end will come. They tell us the devil won't make the sowing of the gospel seed profitless. No matter how you feel about society or how insignificant and overlooked you feel the Christian faith to be, the growth of the kingdom is all one way. It will grow to include people of all nations. It will, unseen, unannounced, work through the whole lump. This is the will of the King, our Lord Jesus, who reigns with all authority and will be revealed on that day with all glory. So let anyone who has ears listen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We pray those of us who trust in the Lord Jesus would take the encouragement of these words to know that living as his people, engaging with his mission of making disciples from all nations will never be profitless and that he has already in his ministry, in his death and rising, guaranteed the outcome that this kingdom will grow to be greater than all will spread through all and that none will be able to avoid its influence. Now, Father, we pray that we would take the encouragement he gives us and look forward to that day, be ready for that day by being busy with doing what he commands. And, Father, I pray that for those who do not trust him yet, do not confess him as king, they would heed his warning and become ready by turning to him, confessing him, Lord, and seeking his mercy. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.